This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff for you to talk about in this episode include... Scooter Danger. Conspiracy and Journalism. Mistform Dracula. And Project Outsight. Cogs and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cogs and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we're wearing our caps backward, and we are listening to some sort of impenetrable pops and squeaks, not Peter Frampton, because we're hip. We're cool. We're today's teens. Today's teens getting into the Gaming Hut, just like they always did back when they were... 40 years ago's teens, but now they're getting there on their scooters, Robin. Apparently, kids love the scooters, or at least what they love to do is be a um, uh, gig economy compensated service sector for other people's scooters. And that leads us to the question of scooter charger culture. And like all cultures, it contains a dark side and a gameable side, which are, as always, the same side. Am I right, Robin? <laughs> yes, the gooey side underneath. Right. Yeah, so the Bird Scooter Company uh, just suddenly will show up in a city. Uh, you will note that they mostly so far have shown up in uh, southern cities. In where cities without snow drifts. Without uh, <laughs> snow uh, cover. Uh, uh, so you won't find them in Chicago, I assume, yet. It's definitely not in Toronto. <laughs> you, you, they, they, who knows what's under there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, they would get salted to death in, in uh, Toronto. And uh, mm-hmm. we have a history of uh, like even our, our bike rental company that the city had to take over weirdly did not factor into its budgeting the fact that we have winter and bike usage goes down when there are uh <laughs> when there's a foot of snow outside um so Weird. uh the bird scooters sort of uh, use a sort of interesting almost sort of gamifying way of uh getting people to go and uh, uh so what you do is if if you're the user of the bird scooter is you uh open up your app you uh, find it where the nearest uh, scooter uh, center is, where there the should bird's be some nest. Park. I'll bet they call them. Uh, yes, that is. I'm at least as smart as a multi-million dollar marketing board, Robin. Yes, and then you just scoot wherever it is that you want to go. So the idea is to reduce uh, congestion and give people the option of traveling short distances on on these bird scooters. And what you do is you just drop it wherever, and then someone else has to come and pick it up. 
and uh, and charge it up, which they do, you know. So if you're an independent contractor, often as you suggested, teen or, or what have you, you then go collect a whole bunch of them. And then in your own home, in your garage, or your, often I think your parents' garage, you uh, charge them on up and then you get paid uh, X amount for each one. So you can make like a, a couple hundred bucks a night or, um, or in one case, uh, one person reported making $600 uh, collecting uh, bird scooters because otherwise they're sort of, unsightly and and some people uh, guess what can they are not invested in the system and they want to mess with it so some people will what throw a scooter are you saying that people are terrible and therefore social goods inevitably fray <laughs> well i'm saying you need to play test uh, for uh, abusive players <laughs> okay and, and so uh the uh, some people will chuck them down ravines and then uh or or you know hide them or stick them in bins or or what have you and then uh, if a scooter is gone long enough, a bounty appears for recovering it. So you get an extra amount of money for returning that particular one. And that introduces all sorts of other ways of gaming the system. Um, so you can then, uh, you can hoard scooters and, and the company doesn't like that. It, it, uh, it will uh, punish you if you don't return your scooters quickly enough. But how does it know whether you've just found a scooter that was missing or had been gone for a while? It's hard for them to uh, to enforce. So not uh, least because the amount you can sell the scooter battery for is larger than the reward for turning in a hoarded scooter. Uh, that is also a problem. And yet another problem is there. You can now order a uh, kit on eBay to unlock the scooter and turn it into your own personal scooter forever. To, and to, uh, like to break the the uh, nanny system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, different articles that have described the existence of these kits have been threatened by cease and desist orders. So I will not describe them well. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is no, not we will just say that it's a thing that you can do with a thing. Right. Probably cross-circuiting to A may come into it. And so uh, where does the game part come in? Well, we've already alluded to the part that it's sort of a, a, a gaming activity already with a cash prize. Uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, essentially you're hunting Pokemons, except the Pokemons are actual real-life scooters that you then... You collect them all, take them back to the charger center. Uh, but this then introduces a whole sorts of interesting ideas. Like, for example, just the idea of a private company descending on a city and just saying, yeah, people are just going to leave these scooters around everywhere and we're going to rely on teenagers to come and pick them up in a willy nilly sort of uh, decentralized fashion. Not everybody likes that, but there are undoubtedly even more sinister forces in the world who would be willing to exploit this as the center point of a scenario. So it becomes harder to believe there are things more sinister than idiotic tech companies, but yes, let us pretend <laughs> well, for this is, fantasy this is game how, purposes. Yeah. This is still exists. under the umbrella of idiotic uh, tech company. <laughs> right. So uh, I guess the obvious scenario here, might as well get the obvious one out of the way is that uh, if you want to uh, entrap, uh, exciting young prey in order to, uh, wrap them in your web and, uh, and, and devour them at leisure. Uh, obviously, uh, a creature that's, uh, plugged in, so to speak, to, uh, to the modern ways of, of disruption can grab a few scooters and, you know, maybe the, the giant spider or monster or whatever it was. The first time it captured somebody coming after its scooter, it was a, it didn't realize what was going on, but it's a smart giant spider or whatever it is and it figures out uh, that uh, if it collects scooters and puts them in its various lairs, 
It can then uh, eat the people who come and uh, go after them. It can lure teens. Yeah. Um. And, and this and this gamifies a thing that is already happening in some uh, parts of the country that uh, guys who are like, gosh, if only I could get a phone without paying for it. I know I'll put a bird scooter in my dark alley and someone will come with their phone looking for the bird scooter because that's how you track it is on your phone app. And uh, then I will clock them on the head and take their phone. This, of course, merely replaces a common or garden mugger with a uh, exciting uh, giant spider, as you allude. Um, the Another thing is, of course, there w- once there are groups of people doing things, there are rival groups of people doing things, and it uh, has already at least uh, led to a flurry of blows in some cases, and of course in a uh, gamified world, um, if you are collecting the scooters, especially if you're collecting the scooters because you alone have the secret to the fact that the scooter uh, company used um, uh, red mercury, uh, one little uh, droplet of red mercury and all their uh, batteries to make them last longer, um, and then you're at war with the other guys who know about the red mercury, who might be the Russian mob, or they might be um, uh, undead Nazi alchemists, or they might be um, uh, ISIS. They could be any kind of bad people out there for the red mercury. Um, and so you have a, a system where a seemingly minor and ludicrous uh, a faction war becomes something darker and more horrible. Right. And you can then translate this uh, into other settings. So you could have uh, used this as sort of the basis of what if, what if there's a ongoing strife in a fantasy city over the let's imagine that there are, uh, you know, copper globes that uh, hold magical effects in the Sorcerer's Guild. Uh, uses these to uh, uh, target uh, their enemies with uh, lightning bolts or uh, mind control or what have you. And these are sort of, uh, you know, consumables or the equivalent of print cartridges, except they're very expensive. And so uh, they offer a bounty on uh, the sort of low level uh, uh, thieves and, and uh, neighborhood crawlers. And, you know, the if you can find where one of these little globes is, you, you can then take it back to this uh your nearest uh, Sorcerer's Guild location and turn it in for a small reward, um, small for the sorcerers, but big for you. And so this can be a scenario that has the player characters as sort of a low-level characters, and maybe this is their way to kind of navigate the city that they're in for the first time, and they can be heading around trying to find these, and of course uh, they can wind up in scraps with, you know, there's the, the goblin gang that specializes in picking these up, and they don't much like uh, newcomers, uh, coming to the city and, and horning in on their business, or they'll just let you pick them up and then they'll try and ambush you for them. And, pick, and you know, it's much easier. Uh, that might be another problem is that you're, uh, you know, as you get closer to one of these turn-in centers, uh, that the, the, the competition becomes stiffer. Yes. And there are people lying in wait, uh, trying to right. conk you on the head. You might conversely, as a group of player characters, you might be trying, uh, you know, working your way up in the Sorcerer's Guild. So it might be your job to, kind of patrol the areas around the uh, the depots, the turning centers, uh, where uh, people show up with these uh, these copper globes because uh, you want to make sure that your best hunters are not just robbed by uh, uh, lazy ambushers because they're no good. They're not going to go and, and actually find the... They don't bring your your globes back. Right. And, and by globes, it could be anything. It could be, you know, right. rune shards or, uh, you know, bits of alchemical debris or uh, or you know even you could be capturing lost familiars and getting them back it might be right. a situation where uh, you know that sorcerers familiars don't particularly enjoy uh, going out and being the targeting system for spells and uh, uh, i guess it's back to um, 
being fantasy Pokemon, which I think we already right, yeah. covered in the previous episode. Well, in, in the spirit of internet journalism, I will throw out a couple of unsourced statistics that I read somewhere on the internet. <laughs> and one of them is that the amount of time that a bird has to stay on the street in order to pay the bird company back for the cost of making um, uh, the scooter or buying the scooter and then inst- and putting it in the app is longer than the average street life of a bird scooter. So a bird scooter lasts a year. The company has to take 18 months before an individual scooter becomes profitable. Ergo, the scooters are a blind. The, the, uh, in theory, the company, even a tech company can do math and, um, uh, has realized this. And so the bird scooters are actually not about providing scooters at all. They're providing, uh, usage information, uh, for streets and, and you're basically building up a big data sort of how people get to places, which can then be sold to, to cities if you're marginally less, uh, piratical or to companies to say, you want to locate on one of these streets because we found that more people will go down this street. And so this is information that we have and it becomes valuable big data. So once again, it's not the ostensible thing that's the, that, that's the saleable item. It's the use of the thing that becomes the saleable item. And what that means is in a fantasy sort of situation or a magical situation, what they don't actually care about you riding the scooter around, what they want is that because the scooter has a, a, a shard of magnetized obsidian in it or something, they want you to charge up the ley lines. And that can be in a fantasy setting where it's, it can even be a little scooter. It can be a little floating cart or something, or it can be in a regular city where it's urban magicians doing their herbomancy and um uh, you're you're charging up the ley lines of the city either to just keep the city magically um uh potent so that people who know magic can use more magic or for some fell scheme about unleashing or otherwise uh causing badness to happen um uh, in a sorcerous way and that that's what you're doing is you're basically paying people to activate a magic rune across the city of sigil for some unguessable except by the player characters who stumbled onto it being active occult-minded teens in maybe a bubblegum shoe magic game that uh they've found out that, that, that it's magicians that are behind bird it's not just idiots at a tech company right uh it could be vampires and their reason for assembling <laughs> uh ridership information and seeing what routes people use and when is that they're trying to do a big data operation on uh, when it's easy to pick off people that they're most vulnerable. You know, when is right. uh, what time of day is it most likely on this particular dark street where you're not going to be caught, where you have all of your wards up? Are you most likely to be able to get out and catch a victim? Right. They're, they're selling the inverse of that big data for where to put your haven because no one ever goes down that street. Exactly. Or uh, it could just be, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just as when you uh, call an Uber and you, uh, you know, you can follow uh, where the vehicle is, is on the map coming toward you in the city, uh, the bird scooters could all be about, uh, you know, I would like to know where the nearest teenager uh, with a bunch of birds is uh, so that I can uh, have a nice snack on them or, you know, the nearest right. scooter rider is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling kind of hungry. And uh, and then, you know, the uh, bird is seamless for vampires. Yes. Uh, where <laughs> you've. Uh, You've uh, used the in-app purchase. It'll tell you, you know, uh, which riders are coming close. And it might have all sorts of personal data on them as well because it'll be cross-fertilized with all the other apps. It'll stolen all your information. So 
let's say that you are only interested in Catholics or people with uh, type O blood. Or you definitely don't want Catholics because they'll have crucifixes around their neck and annoy you. It could be that, you know, some, some vampires like a challenge, others, others yeah. not. Uh, and so that could be, you know, in a nice black agents game, that could be part of a scheme that you're trying to crack or, and, and the super simple way to do this is just that, uh, in any modern game, someone you are trying to find, uh, you know, they're a user of the bird scooter. And so you're able to, you know, you crack into the, uh, the database of the fictionalized version of bird and extract the user data in order to, uh, oh, well, here's this person's routine all, all laid out. This will make it much easier to, uh, grab them for interrogation or, or kidnap them or, or whatever it is that, uh, you're planning to do. Well, I think on that note, it's time for us to get on our scooters, head through this commercial, and see what waits for us on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? We have once more entered the Conspiracy Corner, and this time around, it is time to look at uh, the fact that the Conspiracy Corner, like a number of our other segments in this show have gotten more relevant in the years that we've been doing that, and that's not a good thing. No. <laughs> in this case, this is uh, inspired by uh, quite a disturbing story that I'm going to cover in fairly light detail, since that's not the point. And since it's gross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, there's a news article about a murder at the beginning of January in Seattle, where a man, guy in his 20s, uh, killed his brother in a horrible fashion. And the news stories highlighted uh, in their headlines the most lurid fact about that, uh, which is that he thought that his brother had turned into a lizard. And as followers of the Conspiracy Corner, that is a keyword that should uh, make a tell, you, if you yes, will, a tell that should make you think that possibly uh, something uh, is going on in that story. And in fact, yes, if you uh, drill down into it a bit, the perpetrator was uh, involved with uh, other conspiracies as well. Uh, he was a QAnon follower. He was a member of the Proud Boys. And uh, he identified himself on the phone as a schizophrenic. Uh, this is the point where you always have to point out that 
uh, the number of crimes committed by uh, people even with very serious mental illnesses is much, much lower than, than the number of times that people with mental illness are victimized by others. Uh, but this is a sort of lurid story that gets uh, headlines. And uh, in this case, it's uh, it hasn't been extensively reported out, probably a good thing, uh, but that leaves a sort of uh, questions in the air about uh, how much should we expect uh, journalists and police to know about uh, conspiracy and whether that affects the way that they describe uh, uh, perpetrators. So, so Ken, do you think that these days uh, journalists and police have to be able to recognize uh, the keywords the way that we do? I mean, I think journalists absolutely do because it's literally their job to sort out true things from fake things and relevant things from irre- irrelevant things. And uh, given that conspiracy culture is ever more impingent on um, uh, the repertorial sphere of, of our lives. Yeah. I think that, you know, if someone talks about lizards, you should know the general notion of what that might signify and be able at least to follow it up with pertinent questions about their, uh, the, their interests and their activities uh, in the same way that someone on a, um, uh, on a terrorism beat knows that if you cite a certain uh, a Muslim jurist, that is a tell that they are maybe tacked into Al Qaeda's way of thinking and not into the way of thinking of some other bunch of clerics. And so you should have that same ability to sort of parse the source of given delusions. Now, when the person is like uh, this guy, uh, genuinely mentally ill, uh, paranoid, schizophrenic, all kinds of other problems, hearing voices, literally, it may be less relevant because give the internet being the way it is, you could pick up on something to fixate on. And we all, I think, uh, if you know someone who has uh, tendencies in that way, you know that they will maybe call you or can contact you and say, I just ran across this on the internet. And um, uh, perhaps maybe it'll happen a little more if you are a magnet for such information. But, uh, but, but you know that there's no necessary, it's not, any sort of associational information. It's just people on the internet look for things and among the things they can find are this stuff. And so the, uh, the, the, the degree of sort of forensic utility that it has is maybe a little limited in cases of straight up mental illness, but it can at least provide a way to sort out first, you know, your first cut of this guy was probably on the internet. Let's see what else is going on. Uh, versus this guy is part of a specific world ending cult, uh, as they might be if they talked about, say, a green flash or a black sun. You'd say, Oh, these guys are, are post Serrano neo Nazis. And now I have very specific information about hunting them down. Right. Because there's uh, a couple of things going on. There's the fact that people who, uh, suffer from delusions as a result of mental illness seek out things to fixate on. Uh, being obsessed with conspiracy culture is not uh, new uh, in, yeah. in that term. Everybody uh, who lives in a city ha- has found, uh, you know, somebody's tightly scrawled uh, handbills about a, a conspiracy that, that is bedeviling them. And you know that that is the, uh, you know, even a layman can tell that that's the result of that kind of ideation. And um, more and more, what that particular, you know, the, the, the skin on what that conspiracy is, is much more available to people now to just glom onto whatever the big popular ones that are being uh, flushed into the uh, bloodstream of, of the world through 
uh, propaganda. And it's sort of an internetification of, I mean, used, it used to be if you were a, a, a manic uh, schizophrenic of this sort, the only thing you could obsess on really was the Bible. Because that was the only thing that you definitely had in the house to obsess about. Now, of course, you have the internet. You could obsess about literally anything. Um, and it, then it's a matter of what's mimetically sticky, like lizard people, uh, versus what's not mimetically sticky, like the best ways to groom your Alsatian. But, but back in the day, part of the reason, uh, we had this sort of sloppy way of indicating mental illness by, uh, Bible quotes in the sort of Stephen King era of horror was that that's literally the only thing you had to obsess on. Now, everyone has stuff to obsess on. And so you're seeing a democratization, if you will, of the source material for this. Similarly, the way that all UFO sightings suddenly became gray aliens in the wake of communion and specifically um, uh, the uh, close encounters that the, the, by depicting the aliens in a given way, they snapped people who are ideating aliens, whether from mental illness or from being uh, con artists into one format. And so the gray, if you look at the, at the numbers suddenly becomes like 80% of alien sightings after close encounters, uh, we're having a similar effect so that people who are uh, uh, drawn to uh, uh, let's, let us say websites that already cater to a uh, unorthodox worldview will start snapping to some of these specific patterns, uh, the, 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 uh, the lizards, et cetera. And that becomes a marker of how influential, I guess you'd call it, uh, those, those, uh, those ideas, those memes are. And I guess this is the part where it, it I don't even know if it's a, a cop question because the police, God bless them, have enough to do. And in these cases, it's not like there's a mystery of, uh, who was behind this guy? It's like the guy was crazy and he attacked his uh, brother. But if you are a mental health worker, I think that becomes important that you become conspira- conspiracy woke so that you can untangle what did this guy get off the Internet versus what did this guy get from some genuine past trauma versus is it just that his neurons are all firing at a different chemical signature than ours and anything in the in the world is going to get picked up on? And you have to, I assume that not being a, a clinician, you have to you know, separate out what comes from outside versus what comes from inside before you can start addressing either chemically or psychoanalytically the inside part of the person. Am I right? Right. Because conversely, you can buy into an off the rack delusion without being identifiably mentally ill, right? The, the, yeah. Or without are, even being mentally ill, you can just be really, really dumb. Right. And you, or <laughs> I've heard the term cognitively vulnerable uh, mm-hmm. used as well. Uh, but the, yeah, that, a mark, I guess, is the old term for that. But the, the uh, belief in quite outlandish uh, conspiracy theories is you can a- acquire something that is objectively delusional with by uh, seeking it out and becoming convinced right. of it. And in some cases, it begins as performative, right? Uh, there are, for example, there is a phenomenon which probably deserves its own segment of NBA stars uh, trolling the media, the overwhelmingly white media, I should add, with flat earth belief. And one does not assume that NBA stars are a unique pocket in our population. There's something about being tall and fast makes you cognitively vulnerable to flat earth beliefs. It's that's very funny to troll someone into th- having to report um, uh, such and such uh, shooting guard for the Cavaliers. Also, <laughs> quite eloquent on the topic of the flat earth. Uh, and that's just a funny thing to do to a sports reporter who you probably hate for a million other reasons anyway. So there's a performative quality to a lot of conspiracy belief where 
I mean, even, even on the level where you and I do it on this very show week after week, we performatively believe in conspiracies and then we stop believing at the end of the segment and move on to another segment, which if we were 15 minutes in, this would be a perfect, uh, uh time to jump, but I'll bet we're not. What do you got, Robin? <laughs> um, right. And what we're also seeing is, is a more active effort in the world as part of, uh, you know, the, Putinist plus conspiracy, the attempt to uh, widen uh, every possible gap in uh, Western societies in order to make things worse, is the use of conspiracy theories itself nothing new in order to foment political unrest. It may, you know, in fact, have been the original reason anybody first came up with a conspiracy theory, of course. The, and it was it was absolutely the reason that uh, the Okrana came up with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Right. And so uh, the, I, I guess it's nothing new that, that conspiracy theories are <laughs> being... Even the Russians are doing it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that, that are being promulgated in order to sort of uh, exploit, you know, weaknesses and create a social disorder. But the, I guess the different thing now is just how easily they all meld together that, uh, you know, QAnon, for example, is basically every conspiracy theory uh, glued together. And mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, completely unclear whether the people uh, behind it uh, who are uh, very obviously creating uh, real social harm are doing it uh, as uh, believers or exploiters. I have my my bet and I bet you do too. Yeah. But- and and uh, one of the things that happens, though, is uh, it tends it, it in in the literature certainly you can see this having happened straight up in the past that people who begin as promulgators uh, exploiters become believers because if you keep repeating something turns out that's bad for your brain um, or good for your brain in the sense of you're training it to do a thing and uh, if you're, what you're training your brain to do is believe in nonsense even performatively you wind up believing in nonsense and that is so very often the case of someone who comes into the field from outside, says, well, I believe this little bit about Hitler, but I don't believe any of this nonsense. And at the other end, and not even very many years later, is a full-on lizard alien, flat earth, um, uh, a mad gasser of the Trilateral Commission believer, because... Once you open that door a little bit, even in pretend, you can become more vulnerable to that uh, set of belief system. Because part of the way that you play with this is to say, what would be true if? And uh, at some point, your brain is very hard at keeping a hold of if. Right. Because if you're getting a, a dopamine hit from uh, connecting all the dots and, and uh, you know, finding other people around you to sort of fool, your brain doesn't know the difference between a fictional delusion that you were playing with on purpose and an, an actual delusion or it, it becomes that over time uh, because the, you know, you are, you are feeding it to reward you for a certain thing and the reward right. becomes uh, greater, the uh, more effort you have to put into believing something. So it absolutely makes sense that people would, you know, jump that gap uh, in from, uh, you know, playing with something to uh, being uh, played uh, by something. And there are also so many other different ways to be uh, drawn in to now that every conspiracy theory connects to every other conspiracy theory, uh, you know, that you can go from if you type in vaccination on YouTube, uh, even if you are doing it signed out with, uh, you know, no uh, YouTube does know your browsing habits, it will yeah. almost as immediately recommend anti-vax conspiracy stuff to you and that's 
another big problem is the way that a lot of these big tech platforms are, uh, you know, not at all policing uh, these, uh, you know, literally dangerous memes. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you used to, you know, have to send away for a, a weird mimeograph zine in order right. to get deep conspiracy stuff. And now it is being um, pushed at you by uh, selection algorithms. Which only measure stickiness because that's literally their job. But, of course, as we've talked about before, stickiness um, and truth are very different things. And a lot of things that are very, very uh, bad and weird uh, turn out to be super sticky, as though they had to be stickier in order to stay alive in the mimetic sphere at all. And again, this is probably a whole different segment. But the notion that these certain beliefs, um, not just that people are cognitively vulnerable, but their beliefs that are cognitively aggressive is another thing that I think it's really not necessarily a cop thing to worry about. Maybe if you're the FBI and you're building profiles or worrying about national security implications of Russian jerkballs uh, spreading memes. But I think on the street level, well, I think there are probably cases where it, it does matter when you're arresting someone and they profess to have done something because they believe in, in lizard people to uh, be able to tell the difference between the uh, performative and the right. genuine del- and the, le- and the genuine. And again, I, I, I suspect that's part of the same skill set that lets you just tell whether someone's crazy or on drugs or just a violent asshole, which is a standard cop. Uh, or street cop, at least, uh, uh, skill set, right? That you have to be able to do that just for your own, uh, sanity and safety, uh, whether they're talking about, uh, lizard people or whether they're talking about, um, uh, bugs or whether they're talking about anything. Although, you have to be able to sort of- uh, as we covered in the satanic panic segment, yeah. uh, there have been instances of conspiracy theories taking root in law enforcement. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a whole, that's sort of the other end of the question is because, as we've seen with that kind of thing, any attempt to teach cops about conspiracy theory almost always winds up teaching them to make bogus connections. So the, the thing is, you teach them that, oh, belief in lizard people is a dangerous marker for schizophrenia. They go down and bust lizard man press or someone writing a, a simple role playing game about lizard people. And uh, because they're like, well, they're spreading dangerous information. They're bad people. They're connected up with these QAnon stabbing cults. And that, you know, teaching cops things that are not immediately relevant to copying, I find, is is tends to do more damage than just telling them to, you know, be aware in the moment of, of specific individual uh, markers versus broad cultural ideation. I think that's the job of journalists and to a lesser, much lesser extent, the job of the FBI and, and whoever's job it is to keep um, uh, us safe from mimetic warfare. So I guess that uh, raises a question for yet another uh, segment, which is, how to fictionally present all of this stuff and make sure that it remains in the realm of, of fiction and it doesn't uh, acquire that power. Yeah. And a specific case like this is too gross and human, I think, to fictionalize in any way, except very maybe as the this is the inciting incident that draws your team of esoteric investigators onto the scene. And they're like, oh, among the dank memes that he believed were these esoteric markers because unlike uh, real cops, you have the pretend ability to isolate uh, these memes and work with them and follow them to the very genuine uh, cults of wizards behind things. Not the pretend ones. We just are pretending to believe in to get money. Oh my God, we've indicted ourselves. Haven't we? <laughs> right. And, and I think even more so, uh, to the point, it raises the question of how do we who traffic in this stuff fictionally do so responsibly in a way that we're not, uh, creating 
uh, things that people want to uh, believe and then emulate. And so since we've now proposed about six different other changes of topic, uh, let's get out of this topic entirely and see what the next <laughs> one happens to be. the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Scoot on over to Patreon to keep this podcast alive alongside such supporters as... Andrew Cowie. Brendan Clowerty. Brian Malcolm. Graham Wills. And Jack Ulick. The rattle of chains, the creepy light from the mausoleum, and the theremin music floating in from somewhere behind the scenes welcome us once more into the horror hut, uh, 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 where P- beloved Patreon backer Jeff Cannell asks, Dracula in the form of mist, and I think in, in my mind Jeff is asking this like an old-timey noir detective or reporter, uh, <laughs> Dracula in the form of mist, would the mist show in a reflection? You gotta tell me, Doc. Uh, so, Robin, do you have a, a hot take on Dracula's mist flexion? And the, do we want to talk about why Dracula turns into mist in the first place? What do we want to do, Robin? Help me. Let's back up, because otherwise this is a, a yes or no question, and it's over in a minute. Yes, that's right. Robin says no, I say yes. Next, on Horror Hut. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so why does Dracula turn into mist, Ken? Thanks! Thanks, interlocutor, who I am in no wise acquainted with. Um, Dracula turns into mist because there is a Romanian, uh, form of the vampire, uh, called the Strigoi or the Moroi, depending on which part of Romania you're in, but I used Moroi and Ice Black Agents, uh, which is the mist that comes up off of the grave where a vampire is buried, and the vampire's corpse is still down there in the, in the grave, and the mist floats around and feeds on people and drains their blood and sends it magically through some sort of Star Trek cloud alien way, we don't know, uh, back to the the uh, vampire. And Stoker in his, um, I don't want to say cursory, because he did work very hard, but he just didn't have that much information available to him, in his uh, survey of Romanian folk belief, ran across the uh, cloudy vampire, I suspect, the Moroi, and said, 
I think I can do something with this. And it, but furthermore, it's a great power for Dracula to have. Um, and it connects up with the Gothic notion of fogs as, uh, signs of unreason. And so that's why symbolically it's in the novel is because it's part of the Gothic and Stoker is trying to modernize the Gothic and set it in modern London. And so he takes that element of, of centerism finds a connecting Romanian superstition and pretends that it was true all along. I'm so proud of Bram Stoker. I could just cry. He's so great. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess the, uh, the answer is the real Dracula. I would say probably that, uh, if he doesn't register on mirrors is his non-registration only when he is in humanoid form, uh, or is it only when he's in solid form? You know, when he's a wolf or a bat, can you see him in the mirror? And I would say you're more of an expert on on having met him on, on the real life Dracula than I am. But I would yeah. I would suggest that either you are in mirrors or you're not. That it's, it's too much, you know, sl- fine slicing and dicing of folklore to say that you're uh, that you're not. But in uh, the fictional Dracula, who everybody is familiar with, the question is depends on what you want to do, right? If you have a a scenario set up where there's, uh, you know, people are trying to lure Dracula to a, uh, a hall of funhouse mirrors and there's some, uh, you know, reason that they want to, uh, you know, uh, prove that he doesn't uh, register in, in the, uh, in the mirror. Uh, is it more chilling and, and fun to have him, you know, the, Mist begins to coalesce as you look into the mirror. Uh, maybe there's something going on we can only see in mirrors or, or what have you. Um, you know, are you getting him out of a vulnerability or are you creating a vulnerability that you need for the story? Cause I suppose, uh, you know, if you're walking around with a mirror and there's a bunch of mist out there and some of the mist doesn't show in the mirror. That would be hard to tell. Yeah. It'd be hard to tell. And, and unless you have like a computer program that analyzes mist formation, like you've hacked into something that, or you've uh, re- reused uh, something that's supposed to measure like clouds on the surface of Jupiter or uh, high up in space, and you take that cloud tracker and you apply it to the image of the mist in your mirror somehow, and you're like, oh my god, this mist is different in the mirror than the mist outdoors. Uh, perhaps that means there's a vampire hiding in it. Right. Or perhaps it means Jupiter is not the same as outdoors. And and then what do you do with that information? <laughs> I I hope you run. Yeah. But maybe you're using it to um uh to to find out where Dracula is so you can unleash your this time for sure guaranteed acme Dracula killing device. Um I will give you a reason that he might show up as mist and not as people. And it's it is up to you to use it or even believe it. Dracula, Stoker's Dracula, let us say does not appear in mirrors, not because mirrors are silver. You will get a lot of well-meaning people who are saying, well, modern mirrors are made with aluminum uh, alloys, and so they you'd show up in them because of silver. And Dracula literally holds silver in the novel. Dracula doesn't give a crap about silver. The reason Dracula doesn't turn up in silver, or in mirrors, rather, is because the mirror captures the human image, and that is the notion that the image of you that is captured is in some ways your soul. And we have all uh, been familiar with the notion that a um, uh, primitive tribes are terrified of cameras because they'll capture your soul. Well, the primitive Irish believe that if your reflection was in a mirror or a window, your soul is in some way in that mirror or that window for a bit. And uh, Stoker being the primitive Irish 
uh, glommed onto that notion that the image in glass of you is a reflection of your soul and a, uh, and a, uh, way for your soul to be caught. Well, Dracula don't got no soul. He's a vampire. He's a horrible, horrible, horrible person. His soul, if he ha- ever had one, is down in hell being saved for the devil against the, the glorious day. Uh, so that's why he doesn't show up in mirrors because he doesn't have a soul for the mirror to capture. Now, the question of, if he turns into mist, the human image is necessary, biblically speaking, if for no other reason, as the way that you know that someone's got a soul, right? That God made you in his own image. He didn't make you in his own image plus mist plus a bat. Um, so if you turn into a bat, then you're turning into a thing without a soul anyway. So the bat would show up in the mirror as would the mist. That is my argument for why people vampires don't show up in mirrors, but transformed vampires perfectly well might. Uh, your uh, mileage, theologically and literarily, may differ. Right. And again, it should be differ based on what does your game need, not what does Ken insist about Bram Stoker in an ever more futile struggle against idiocy. Right. So if you're a, a GM, which answer do you need? Reason backwards from there. Uh, if you're a, a GM, your player may be asking, does Dracula's mist show up in a mirror? And then I think you also want to say to the player, why do you want to know what, what does sort of winkle out what it is that they're trying to determine and then figure out, uh, which one of those things is the most fun. I think the, uh, thing that you want to avoid at the table is a lot of useless speculation that is not happening in character, but is being, uh, spun out by the, uh, resident member of the group who likes to spin out weird ideas and not move the actual action of what's going on in the, in the, in the story along because, I can already hear in my head the person, well, you have to have a soul to be seen in a mirror. Well, what about my bookshelf? I can see that in a mirror. Does that mean bookshelves have souls? And that's that that's a, a rabbit hole that you want to shut down as quickly as you possibly can. Right. And, and that's and that's um uh, what you very much need to have a straight off human form, not human form, I think lets you shut that down very rapidly. The other thing I guess that you can ask about uh reflections is Something, something that comes up in the John Badham Dracula is, does Dracula appear in natural reflections, like reflecting pools of water? And in the um, uh, movie of uh, Dracula that John Badham does, a vampire appears, her reflection appears in a pool of water, uh, startling the person who she is behind, spoiler, and uh, they turn around and go, oh my god, a vampire, and get attacked. In a concept where all reflections of the soul, that would not happen. And in fact, uh, when John Badham was called on it, he said, oh, didn't you notice that Van Helsing had dropped his crucifix in that puddle? Therefore, the water was holy water. And so it could be reflected in it because it's helping you fight vampires. Now, first of all, all props to John Badham for coming up with that off the top of his head at the spur of the moment. Uh, he's Good job, spoken man. Spoken like a true game master. Spoken like a true GM. I would I would play in your game any day. But it does leave the question of mirrors versus glass windows versus pools of water versus at what point uh, does this uh, reflection uh, take hold versus not take hold. And you can imagine uh, Dracula doesn't have a shadow because a lot of uh, wizards and demons don't have shadows. And uh, if, if it's a whole no, no human form uh, and that sort of pl- plays into the old notion that uh, Stoker had that Dracula couldn't be photographed. Um, uh, and indeed that we did in Dracula Unredacted, that he couldn't even be painted, that you couldn't um, uh, paint an image of him correctly because it would ruin it. And that 
uh, leads you down all manner of fun rabbit holes, some of which really work in the fiction, as in the single best bit in Elizabeth Kostova's The Historian, um, uh, and in other things, it doesn't so much work, and it introduces more problems than not. So if you're a novelist, uh, you can get away with it. If you're a GM, I guess the message, the moral of our story is be at least as ready as John Badham. Right. <laughs> uh, you could also decide that when Dracula is in any form, he is reflected as mist so that you right. see his, his presence and there's something creepy going on. But that's really what you're seeing is that Dracula actually is a being of, of mist that periodically takes on a solid form. Uh, and that uh, really it's that you're only seeing his uh, able to record or perceive his his shell, this this little bit of spark that's left in him, this this undead essence. And so, you know, you can paint a blur, or he's a blur on the security camera footage, or indeed he's a a blur in the uh, in the reflecting pool or in the mirror. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, look over our shoulders, uh, make sure there's no Draculas chasing us, and see what's on the other side of this here segment. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons alert us to the fact that we're standing next to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, Time Incorporated has asked you to look into the following question. What happens if you secure funding for Project Outsight? Uh, this is the uh, mid-50s plan by Aldous Huxley and a couple of uh, a, a psychiatrist and a uh, neurologist and, and philosopher, all of them expat uh, Brits living in North America in the mid-50s. So it's Aldous Huxley, Humphrey Osmond, and John Smithies, or Smithies uh, who plan uh, this uh, initiative in the 50s called Project Outsight, and the idea of this is to explore uh, applications of uh, psychedelic substances. In fact, it is uh, uh, Smithies who, oh no, sorry, Osmond, who invents the term psychedelic. He and uh, Huxley spitball that together. At any rate, they want to create a, uh, a foundation, uh, uh, find funding for it, and then uh, mescalize, dose with mescaline, uh, such noted figures as Albert Einstein and Graham Greene. And in our history, uh, this doesn't quite happen, but, uh, Ken, when you mess with the timeline... The, the, the figures, I hasten to point out, would then have written down what it was like. 
Yes. It wasn't just to sneak up and mess with them. No. It wasn't a <laughs> they, prank. They, they it was would have known that it was going to happen. And, right. Right. And so the idea was to, you know, have the <laughs> I blue... Just, rip- I, just, I just feel like we should point that out at the beginning of this segment. Yes. Because as much fun as it is, the notion of trying to get someone to give you a grant to accidentally slip acid on to Einstein, that's not what it's no, about. No, it was about having a, the blue ribbonist panel of blue ribbonist people to explore and uh, and write about and record and compare psychedelic experience. Uh, Huxley, of course, uh, he's the grandson of Thomas Huxley, the uh, uh, supporter of, uh, of Darwin, and uh, he was an all-around uh, a writer in both fiction and journalism. He wrote both fiction and nonfiction, most famously the novel Brave New World, which was one of the, uh, and remains one of the most influential uh, dystopian novels. Uh, and in 1954, as part of his exploration of psychedelia, he writes a, a slim volume about his uh, early uh, experiences on mescaline called The Doors of Perception. And uh, for uh, those Which who I know Which I think is what the Doors named themselves after. Exactly. The band. Famously, uh, your, your rock culture footnote there. So, and, and Huxley was a fascinating person who was interested in all sorts of different things. He had a regular Tuesday night group where uh, people interested in uh, uh, what we call elliptony would all get together and, and talk about it. So he uh, met with mediums. He knew J.B. Ryan. Uh, he was interested in uh, all forms of uh, mystical exploration, and uh, but also a, uh, a man of science. And this was meant to be a very uh, highly scientific approach to this question. And uh, he was looking for uh, funding from like the Ford Foundation and a bunch of other uh, he was looking for super reputable sources, and weirdly, Ken, uh, in our timeline, nobody uh, came through with the funding. Nobody stepped up. It was weird. And then, should we talk a bit about the guys that he ganged up with, um, uh, uh, Humphrey Osmond and uh, John Smithies? Uh, yeah. So Osmond uh, was an expat Brit like him. He came to a, a really terrible uh, psychiatric facility in Saskatchewan for a while, and and. Uh, got that out of the medieval era, and he was uh, so he was interested in treating people who were really, really suffering. And also, uh, Smithies was a, a neuroscientist and a, and a philosopher, and uh, he also had interesting uh, fa- uh, family connections. So uh, Graham Greene, I guess, came to mind because he was uh, Smithies' uh, cousin. Uh, Christopher Isherwood, he was also related to, and Isherwood was a collaborator of Huxley's. They wrote a screenplay together when they were both trying to make it as screenwriters in Hollywood. Um, and he was also a cousin to uh, Richard Dawkins and Smithies is still uh, with us and still, still taking along today. Yeah. As I found out when I was doing my part of the research for this is that he's still around. Um, I mean, good for him. And, uh, Osmond also coined the word psychedelic. So if you're looking for the man to thank, that's the man. Yes. He, he and Huxley spitballed possible, uh, possible words before he came up with that one. Uh, and he also uh, was uh, concerned not just with uh, 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 making uh, mental hospitals somewhat less terrible and with ex- ex- examining psychedelics and their effects both on individuals and on the culture. He also was sort of a cultural architect and believed that architecture had a uh, effect on your on the way that you thought and uh, recommended that you design architecture to amp up the environmental psychology of people have to live in it. So he, if um, uh, he was sort of, that, that was sort of a side topic for him, but it's interesting that he's also sort of there at the, at the corner of Jane Jacobs and sick building syndrome, right? Right. That 
sort of an interesting little bit of his life as well. And he was thinking about it just how do you build a mental hospital so that it doesn't literally drive people crazy to live there. Um, but he had that thought for sort of, well, anywhere you got to have a bunch of people, you should be thinking these questions because you shouldn't be making people crazy in the office and then send them to the asylum. That doesn't help anybody. And uh, he was pretty early on in, in uh, recognizing and trying to do uh, something about the fact that the uh, circumstances in which uh, psychiatric patients were placed were horrific. Were, were, were the places you set horror movies now yes. <laughs> without any, you know, lighting or set dressing. You just say, look, it's an asylum. Let's shoot a horror movie here because it's literally already scary. It's quite a thing, uh, institutional culture, quite a thing. Um, so anyway, those are the guys and they're all teamed up. And in 1953, they come up with the notion of Project Outsight and begin trying to get grants for it throughout the mid fifties and eventually have to give up. Uh, that is where, uh, our story takes us, I guess. And then the question is, how did I change that? And the answer is with a young man who you may know as Michael Clark Rockefeller. Um, and Michael Clark Rockefeller is, uh, the fifth child of, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who was of those Rockefellers, but was also governor of New York and perennially abandoned candidate for president for being too much of a liberal wuss. Uh, so we have lots of reasons to be very interested in Nelson Rockefeller, but the reason we're immediately interested is that his son, Michael Clark Rockefeller, famously disappeared in New Guinea in 1961 while he was studying a tribe called the Doni, or maybe other tribes that were around the Doni, but they were down there in, in western New Guinea, which at that time was under the rule of the Dutch, and was also at that time barely explored by anybody. So you could take a canoe around the next bend and never come back, as indeed happened. And the theory, the lurid theory, is that the Doni, or some of their enemies, found an eight Michael Clark Rockefeller. It is probably much more likely that a saltwater crocodile found an eight Michael Clark Rockefeller because there are a lot of them in that neck of the woods then and now. Much more in the Rockefeller eating business. Right, yes. And historically have eaten more Rockefellers, I suspect, than you suspect. But the reason that he is immediately relevant to our question is he is both a Rockefeller and someone who is super interested in anthropology and it would not be at all hard, and I can tell you that it was not at all hard, to get him into experimental psychedelic use while he's at Harvard. And once he is into experimental psychedelic use, rather than say, I'm going to go to New Guinea for his anthropological work, he thinks, I will go to the Southwest and take peyote and become uh, interested in that. Because this, again, is one of the things that is being done. Um, certainly, uh, Osmond uh, traveled uh, to the Southwest and took part in a peyote ceremony. Uh, one can certainly imagine and indeed create these circumstances in which uh, Michael Clark Rockefeller becomes a anthropological student of psychedelics. But when you are writing letters to the Rockefeller Foundation about we'd like to dose people with psychedelics, isn't it helpful if you can say, oh, by the way, Michael Clark Rockefeller thinks this is a dandy idea, as indeed he did, because that's uh, the kind of guy he would have been. He was a fearless explorer. And in this case, he's exploring inner space, which has fewer or at least fewer toothed crocodiles. Yeah, so the crocodiles are strictly notional. Right. So if you get uh, this research uh, in our timeline, of course, it's a, a young uh, up-and-comer named Timothy Leary who winds up uh, grabbing this ball and running with it. And in fact, the Project Outside group uh, meets with him early in his career when he's still uh, kind of buttoned down. But if they are the ones who are pioneering this in uh, North America and not uh, Timothy Leary, who, of course, 
uh, went full on counterculture and uh, began to promote unsupervised recreational uh, use of psychedelics that then wound up giving them the uh, the odor of a, uh, a dangerous street drug. Uh, the much more sober group of uh, people with British accents are the ones who uh, start pioneering and they do it earlier. So what is the effect on uh, our culture and the uptake of uh, psychedelic treatment, which is only now, once again, being looked at seriously after being uh, verboten for uh, two, three generations. I mean, Leary is still doing his research sort of in parallel. This does not substitute Leary, but it substitutes the attention. And it means that when you are firing Leary, you have something else to do with psychedelics as opposed to say, well, we're never touching that again. It must be for hippies. Um, Timothy Leary is still going to be out there, but with a Rockefeller behind it and Einstein behind it and Carl Jung behind it and Aldous Huxley behind it, suddenly it's a much bigger deal in the, the world, not just of clinical psychology. And I don't know enough about anything. Uh, I would argue neither does anybody else to say whether or not the correct use or even the uh, for modulo early 1960s correct use of psychedelics would or would not improve uh, the treatment of mental patients and schizophrenics. It couldn't hurt. I mean, given what we're doing now. And there was a promising avenue about treating addiction. That- it's absolutely a promising avenue for treating all kinds of things. Depression is another gigantic uh, area that uh, hallucinogenics and general brain altering uh, narcotics and, and, uh, and not even narcotics um, uh, drugs. Uh, can do. So uh, depression, addiction, all manner of things that are very much about how the brain latches onto stuff could maybe be unteased with this kind of research. And certainly, again, the Rockefeller Foundation does not fund one project, uh, brush their hands and say, well, that was that. They Once they're in, they're all in. And certainly if Michael Rockefeller is not being eaten, but is in fact the point man on this whole question, I think that you have a very a large ongoing establishment use of psychedelics. Now, does that mean hippies take it? Take it? Yes. But I think it becomes more like uh, the opioid epidemic and less like the uh, uh, marijuana uh, situation where opioids is just people misusing something that's good and, and, and is meant to be used uh, to help people as opposed to things that weirdos do. Uh, which is a, a different uh, social world for, in terms of drug control. So in addition to all of that, uh, there is an argument, which I know barely enough uh, about philosophy to say that it would have dug us out of the mind brain uh, paradigm and out of what they call the hard question of consciousness early, because uh, if you are a materialist, you have a very hard time understanding how brains work or rather how minds work, because the experience of the mind that we all live in that contains such things as hunches and deja vu and first love and the fact that you cannot, in fact, describe color or taste or sound to people uh, is a real problem for materialists because... It is. And so generally philosophy has uh, solved this by putting their hands over their ears and saying, no, 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 I can't hear you. But the argument is if there was a huge body of literature about other kinds of consciousness that could be created uh, chemically, what does that do to the question of mind brain duality? Does it mean suddenly we're like, oh, no, no, no. All of those things are just chemicals in our brain and we can now figure them out and, and isolate the chemical isomer for first love. Or is it a thing where uh, we are 
perceiving so many different forms of consciousness, uh, perhaps down to and including animal consciousness and plant consciousness. God, uh, God knows, because I think, um, uh, at least one of these guys turns out to have been a panpsychist that we are now divorcing the whole thing and getting all the way uh, past Descartes, um, uh, dead end when he says, I think therefore I am. And you say, what about all the stuff that doesn't think? And what do you mean by thinking? Um, and those, uh, questions apparently would have had a big ground burster effect on modern day philosophy. Again, I barely know anything about it. Um, I know that Wittgenstein, uh, who knew a great deal more about it, believed both sides of the street at different times of his life. So who knows, right? But I think that you would certainly see some kind of gigantic change up in philosophy, which means that you would have seen downstream a uh, effect on pop philosophy and pop psychology. And I suspect that panpsychism would be a much bigger thing now, even if no one actually believed it, even if what they were doing was presenting it as a thought experiment, saying, since we can't actually know the mind of our cat, even when we're on drugs, but what can we guess about the mind of our cat and the consciousness of our cat, given this new um, empirical uh, base of research that would then lead down to people, more people believing that uh, their, their cat, uh, everyone believes their cat has a mind, but would believe maybe that their, their pen or their or lawn or all kinds of other things have mind. And I suspect you'd see an even stronger ecological movement as one of the side effects of uh, getting everyone dosed up on mescaline in the late fifties and early sixties. And uh, I suppose if you want to create a, a sort of a kooky alternate timeline where, uh, you know, faster than light travel is discovered in 1954, you just right. explain that by it's Albert right. Einstein. Einstein comes down and says, oh, my God, it's so simple. Yes, now I'm, <laughs> now I'm seeing it in all 12 dimensions, and this mm-hmm. is what you do. And uh, and so that can give, you can look at the careers of uh, the various uh, people that they expected to uh, put on their project outside board. Or, uh, you know, if it existed, you can assume that uh, as it became more successful and interesting that whatever other uh, historical figure from that period that you want to have uh, receive a, a, a blinding revelation, you can uh, consider that they did that in the uh, safe and comfy and Rockefeller-funded uh, confines of alternate reality Project Outsight. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the form of travel that I think we now have to investigate is the form of trans-podcast travel, where we uh, exit these particular audio electrons and return to a whole different set of audio electrons one week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from Misty Draculas alongside such Patreon backers as... Jacob Ansari. Theron Bretz. Aryan Poutsma. Drew Eichholz. And Dan Daniel Markwig. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Start With Earth. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.